Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives podcast, where we explore the triumphs and challenges of the Korean American experience and examine different sides of complex issues that shape our community. We thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives podcast. My name is Abraham Kim, the Executive Director of the Council of Korean Americans, and I'll be your host for today's episode. I'm here with Dow Kim, a former leading Wall Street financier, a philanthropist, and a loving father. He is the president of the Dow Kim Family Foundation, a private foundation engaged in philanthropic activities in the areas of education, social services, and arts and culture with the sole purpose of helping to better and empower the lives of underserved and under-resourced Korean Americans. In this episode, we discuss how Dow discovers his talents and love for finance, his time at Merrill Lynch, his entrepreneurial pursuits, and his philanthropy work. Relax and enjoy this wonderful interview with Mr. Dow Kim. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Dow. It's, it's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for coming and joining the Korean American Perspective Podcast. Well, thank you for the opportunity to uh, share my life stories with you and your audience. So, Dal, let's start from the beginning. Uh, I understand you were born in Korea and you spent your childhood in Korea, but you also had an opportunity to move because of your parents uh, moving to Singapore or at least Southeast Asia, that you had this transition from Korea to, to Southeast Asia. Can you share with us that experience as a child and what you remember of that experience? Yeah, sure. So I was born in Korea, like you said, and I spent the first 12 years of my life there. And after graduating from the primary school, my father uh, moved the entire family to Singapore for a couple of reasons. First being that it was closer to his uh, mining company that he was running in Malaysia. And the second reason was that he wanted to uh, educate his children, my siblings and me, uh, in Singapore and then ultimately in the uh, States for higher education. And because of my father's work in Malaysia, he commuted back and forth between Malaysia and, and Korea and then eventually Malaysia and Singapore. And he would come home maybe once a month. and. You know, my siblings and I were really excited every time that uh, he was about to come home because, you know, he always brought us toys and presents. <laughs> so there was uh, uh, moments that I can still remember. And we'd always go out to this uh, seafood restaurant while we were living in Singapore or a steamboat restaurant, which were our favorites uh, whenever my father was in town. So those are the uh, moments that I still remember, although it was a long time ago. What was your relationship with your parents? Did you have a good relationship? Was your father very strict with you? You had, I recall from a previous interview that you, it sounded like your parents were very, run a very um, strict household, I guess, <laughs> to say this. Yes, so my father was fairly strict. Uh, with me especially because I was the eldest son and uh, he had uh, high expectations and hopes for me and uh, he basically made sure that you know I s developed a sense of right and wrong and also sense of responsibility that I always studied hard and worked hard with a good work ethic and he also taught me and my sister and brother to be humble and generous to uh, our friends and other people in general. And my mother oftentimes acted as a counterbalance to my father. She showed more you know, affection and love to us, although we knew that you know, our father was uh, very loving uh, in his own way, in his heart, to be honest. And my mother would often tell my father to uh, back off when she thought that he was going overboard in terms of you know, trying to teach us a lesson or 
you know, tell us in terms of things to do. Did you ever feel any pressure from your parents to perhaps take a particular career pathway or were you feeling like you're being groomed for, you know, some, doing something similar as your father? Yeah, so again, being the eldest son, he had uh, real high hopes for me. And over time, he wanted me to get into uh, areas of uh, finance, although he didn't know exactly you know, which areas of finance, uh, because he learned that from his uh, friends and colleagues that being in the finance industry in the U.S. was a... <laughs> It's uh, not a guarantee to success, but a reputable thing or a career to have. So he was pushing me in that direction. And fortunately, because my interests also lie uh, lay in that area, that uh, eventually our goals and expectations were aligned, if you will. So did, but was this instilled in you from a young age, or was this something that... Uh, like you said, you eventually grew to love, or is this something that you just felt like your father was pointing you in that direction? No, I mean, uh, I myself, having learned about my strengths and weaknesses and my own interest, mm-hmm. developed a desire to get into finance at an early age, perhaps uh, as early as in high school. Yeah. And then over time in college, I, after doing more research, after speaking with other people in the business, I developed a keen sense and desire to get into trading part of the uh, finance industry. Yeah. So you went to Singapore, then you were, then you decided to go to boarding school at Andover. Tell me about how that decision transpired. Is that something that you wanted to do or did that, did your parents say, now it's time to go to, Time to go to back, <laughs> go to the United States for your education. A good question. Uh, it was largely my father's decision at the time. What happened was that he met with the U.S. ambassador to Singapore at the time, and he obtained a list of all the supposedly you know best high schools uh, in the uh, U.S. And he kind of you know asked me to apply to these schools uh, because that was his. Uh, path for me at the time, if you will. So that's how I ended up applying to boarding schools after learning English for about a little more than a year from Singapore. And unfortunately, I didn't get in the first time. I got into one other school, but I didn't get into any of the uh, you know, supposedly good schools that was good schools that were on the list. Mm-hmm. So we decided to wait another year and I reapplied. And luckily, I got into uh, Andover for 10th grade position. Hmm. So, tell me about that experience at Andover at boarding school. Obviously, it's in New England and Massachusetts. I'm sure you were one of few Asian students there at the time. If, were there other Korean students there as well? Were you the only uh, Korean American? Uh, Korean no, student. there were two other uh, Korean students at the time, mm-hmm. one in my class, and actually that person's brother, older brother, in the uh, upper class. So there were three Koreans at the time uh, when I was there. Mm-hmm. So there were, you know, very few Asians to be perfectly candid at the time. How was that experience? I'm sure you came in with a thick accent because English was new to you. And yeah. Tell me about that experience. Well, you know, I had the best educational and social and life experience at the boarding school while I was there for the uh, three-year period. Uh, It was purely incredible, you know. I played in varsity soccer and varsity squash for all three years. I was a uh, house proctor uh, during my senior year. I also founded the uh, International Cuisine Club. So I was very busy during those three years, but I felt that I was embraced by the community, by my teammates, schoolmates, you know, classmates, housemates, uh, teachers, and so forth. I didn't feel any um, sense of discrimination or anything like that. Uh, So I had a wonderful time. And 
I learned quite a bit during those three years. Uh, it was a seminal moment in my life, actually. Mm. Uh, one of the things that I learned was to really uh, how to manage my time, how to prioritize, and to multitask. And that experience has really helped me to advance in my career as well as uh, in my personal life. And I had lots of pressure and stress, not only from you know, my father, I guess, but also from myself. I put a lot of pressure on myself. And I learned how to deal with those pressure and stress on a daily basis, uh, which have been you know, very helpful in terms of uh, how I dealt with the similar types of circumstances, pressures, and stress uh, later in my life. So it sounds like one of some of the key, I guess, wisdoms or capabilities that you took away from your experience as a boarding school student was, um, like, as you mentioned, time management, the ability to handle multiple priorities, how to, how to make priorities, but also how to, it sounds like boarding school experience was an opportunity for you to flourish and you were supported in ways that you probably never would have imagined you were, would be supported in a high school setting like that. That's exactly right, because although it was my father who decided that uh, I had to you know, leave home to go to boarding school, I actually wanted to leave home because you know, I wanted uh, some breathing room. But at the same time, when I was uh, 15, my mother was quite sick and she was uh, in hospital uh, when I was actually leaving for boarding school. So I had mixed feelings to attend Andover at the time. But in hindsight, I think that was the best decision that uh, my father made on my behalf. And so for some reason, I managed to um, handle the pressure competing against you know, some of the best students from all over the world and you know, uh, developed as a person during that period. So from Andover, you applied to college and you initially went to Wesleyan and then, uh, and then moved to UPenn afterwards. You, I, in a, another uh, interview, I, I read that you felt that in some ways you were disadvantaged and so which resulted in perhaps not, you not being able to go to some the, your choice schools. Could you share with us uh, your thoughts on that? Yeah. I think you are referring to a, uh, it was more of a rhetorical question that the writer of the book, when he was interviewing me, rather than me thinking that uh, I felt biased, that discriminated against. Uh, in hindsight, I think what happened was, although I felt strongly at the time that I was a complete student, meaning that uh, you know, I graduated cum laude from boarding school, like I said, I played varsity sports. I was in a house proctor. So I thought I did all the things required to become a good candidate to get into one of those Ivy League schools or school of my choice. But it wasn't meant to be. So, you know, in their eyes, I was not a, you know, the, uh, I guess, complete student for their schools, which I accepted. So I did managed to attend uh, Wesleyan University for the uh, freshman year. And then in order to pursue my goal of getting into finance, I uh, transferred to the Wharton undergraduate school at the uh, UPenn. And how was that experience at UPenn? Did you, was it what you all, what you had hoped it to be in terms of college experience? Yeah. So, you know, Wharton undergrad is uh, basically a business school. So I, I took a lot of the business-related courses, such as accounting, finance, statistics, marketing, and so forth. So that kind of provided me the tools to have the skill set to join a bank, if you will. Uh, so from that perspective, that was very helpful. But really, the foundation for my life was really established starting back at the boarding school. And basically that experience was reinforced uh, at college. Yeah, because I, I read in your bio that uh, really your love for finance started as a junior in high school. Uh, right. Right, right. 
And that's how you were introduced. So what about finance really grabbed you as your kind of like that first love for this, this field? Is there, was there a particular aspect of finance that really drew you to that? Well, as you mentioned earlier, my first interest in finance really occurred when I was in high school. But I would describe that experience as being more superficial uh, because uh, many of my classmates' parents were in finance and they seemed to be very <laughs> successful and you know, making lots of money and, and doing quite well. So it, it kind of felt like glamorous, if you will. And so that's what I guess interested me in finance initially. But then I, as I delved into the industry, I mean, there are so many different subsectors within finance. And after assessing my own strength and weaknesses, I felt strongly, this was all during uh, the college years, that the best area for me to get into and do well would be in trading because I was um, good at numbers, with dealing with numbers, with math. Um, I felt that I had uh, strong analytical skills. You know, I had good written communication skills, but maybe not so much in uh, spoken <laughs> language or communication. Uh, I kind of felt that I would not do well in investment banking or consulting or marketing and so forth because my strength was not in you know, spoken languages, to be perfectly honest. So I tried to align my strength with where my interest was to begin with. And, you know, it kind of worked out in the end. After you finished at Wharton, you, you joined a, a couple of banks. You went to Manufacturers Hanover Trust, uh, where you worked as a credit analyst in commercial banking and option trader. Uh, then you moved to Chemical Bank in Tokyo, Japan. And I understand Japan was actually a very special place for you in terms of your own growth in this as your as a professional. Uh, share with share with me a little bit about what you know what happened in Japan and why Japan was such a special place in your career yeah. development. Just stepping back, so after graduating from college, uh, I tried to join an investment bank such as uh, Goldman Sachs, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, and J.P. Morgan and so forth here in the uh, states in new york mm -hmm. but part of the reason why i felt that i couldn't get into those institutions was because i didn't have a green card mm -hmm. i did have job offers in singapore and korea but i wanted to remain in new york so i i was fortunate enough to get a job at manufacturers Hanover bank as a bank management trainee and that that lasted for about nine months and after the program, I joined the uh, leasing company as a credit analyst. So initially, I wasn't able to attain my goal of becoming a trader at an investment bank. So I was uh, very patient for the initial, I guess, five years or so of my career. And then while I was at Manufacturers Hanover Bank, I was given the opportunity to join the trading desk at the bank in New York in 1989. And at the desk, I guess I, I did quite well. I was liked by my uh, supervisors and I was asked to move to Tokyo to manage a um, derivatives trading book uh, in 1991. So my wife and I decided to move to Tokyo and that's when we ended up living in the country for about nine years. So initially after working for Chemical Bank, it was at the time, now today is uh, JP Morgan, after a number of mergers, I decided to join uh, Merrill Lynch because I kind of felt that, you know, in order to be a um, world-class trader, if you will, that I needed to operate it, operate it within a pure investment bank such as uh, Merrill Lynch, uh, rather than at a commercial bank at the time. 
today, of course, JP Morgan and other commercial banks are you know, regarded as part of you know, large investment banks because they have much bigger operations uh, compared to um, you know, in the uh, 1990s. So that was the reason why I decided to uh, move to a pure investment bank. And when I joined Merrill, I had the opportunity to join either Merrill Lynch or Morgan Stanley with the exact same terms and conditions in Tokyo. And obviously I ended up joining Merrill largely because I was um, more comfortable with the culture of that institution as well as the people uh, that worked there. What was the culture like? What was, what was so unique about Merrill versus Morgan Stanley? Yeah, because my, my strength was in trading. And at the time, Merrill Lynch was not really known as a trading powerhouse, but rather as a uh, brokerage house, as an institution with a very strong client business. So I kind of felt that with my uh, strength in trading that I could get to Merrill and, you know, help their overall client business and build the overall trading business at the same time. So that was one of the main reasons why I ended up joining uh, Merrill Lynch. And you had a, nothing short of a, a meteoric rise <laughs> over the next 10 years in, uh, at, at Merrill Lynch. Walk us through that journey in terms of going, joining Merrill and then within 10 years becoming the uh, co-president of, of the investment, investment bank at, at Merrill. If I look back, I think one of the most fortunate things was that I joined Merrill Lynch in Tokyo rather than in New York, because had I joined the company in New York, I think that I would have been lost, you know, maybe one of the hundreds of other traders and maybe my career and the outcome would have been completely different. The reason why I said that is because when I was actually working in Tokyo, although it was a, an operation which was away from the headquarters, it was one of the crown jewels of the uh, company because the country was important, the business was doing well, and I really had the opportunity to build a business and, and uh, shine, if you will. And what happened was, as I was getting promoted in Tokyo, I had, the, I had many opportunities to meet with the uh, senior management team from New York because they would come out to Japan for a visit and I would have the opportunity as a senior person to meet with them. And throughout the years in Japan, when I was working, I basically um, provided them with the reports, monthly operating reports, if you will, to keep, to keep them track of uh, how we were doing. So. Uh, I was able to build relationships with uh, senior managers uh, in New York. And that helped me uh, with my career in the long run. And I have to say that I was very fortunate to have had very good mentors and supervisors throughout my career at Merrill Lynch. Uh, the unfortunate thing was that I, every time I eventually replaced my supervisors, uh, partly because of politics in the bank. And I have to say that uh, in any organization with more than two people, you know, there will always be politics. So, and Maryland was not an exception. And the reason maybe why I managed to survive through the, uh, you know, the years at Merrill was partly because I was always seen as my own person. You know, I put my head down, I worked hard, and I wasn't afraid to hire the best talent to fill all the uh, positions from outside and, you know, build a business that way. Oftentimes when you hire uh, individuals who are better than you, there's always a risk that, you know, those individuals will replace you. 
but you know, I, I didn't worry about that. And I guess my senior managers at the time saw that as, as, as a strength, if you will. So would you attribute your, your rise in, at Merrill Lynch a combination of luck, skills, and meeting the right people at the right time? Would that, would, would that describe kind of your secret formula for moving up or what would you attribute to your rapid rise? I know. I mean, you're absolutely right. It doesn't sound like a secret formula, but that's what it was. I was uh, at the right place at the right time. I had, you know, great senior managers or supervisors. And I think I was good at hiring talent and building businesses. And also I led by example. I, you know, while I was managing businesses, I also had my own trading book and continued to trade. And so I think in the eyes of uh, my colleagues and people who worked for me, I think that was a, a good thing, if you will. So I would say, again, you know, it was a combination of different factors, but luck played a, a large role <laughs> in my success, I have to say. So if you would advise uh, a young person who's a young finance professional and you were mentoring them, how would you advise them to, uh, to succeed in this kind of an environment? Yeah, obviously, you know, industries have changed quite a bit since I was there. First thing I would advise would be that, you know, figure out what your passion is, what your interest is. And, you know, don't be afraid to, to uh, do lots of research and try out different things. And, you know, don't be afraid to fail. And just pursue your true passion, you know. And also examine your strengths and weaknesses and try to align your interests with your strength. Because as I mentioned, in my case, I knew that I wasn't going to make any progress being an investment banker or a consultant or a marketer, uh, anything like that. I knew my strength was dealing with numbers and that I knew that I was going to be good at making money from trading. Uh, so that's the you know, career path that I chose. And luckily, that was also my passion. I love trading because you know, it's a challenge. Every day is a, is, is a challenge because every morning I wake up, you know, market conditions are different. The, uh, the economic conditions are different. And you are presented with different challenges and you make, you assess and you make decisions and you get, you know, pretty much uh, immediate results. So that was my passion and I was able to pursue that uh, because it aligned with my strength. So that's what I would advise young professionals. I mean, there are so many great industries that you can pursue, but first and foremost, I think you have to really enjoy what you will be doing. You know, so you have to be passionate about the area that uh, you'll be getting into. I've uh, read in uh, other places where one of the differentiation of differentiator of the finance sector is really it's a is very much based on meritocracy. You know, you get it, like you said, you get immediate results and and the value of an employee is based on their performance. Do you do you feel that that is true in in its truest sense, or is there wouldn't human relationships and that ability to I guess network and being I guess charismatic in in an environment like like the finance sector wouldn't that be important as well? And how would an introvert uh, succeed in this kind of an environment? Sure, I mean uh, meritocracy obviously is a basic requirement, I would say. Yeah. And maybe perhaps not just in finance, but in other industries as well. But human relations, you know, being humble you know, being complimentary of other people. Those are all very important factors in being able to, I think, succeed in finance. You have to have certain, I hate to say this, political skills and organizational skills 
to be able to uh, get along with everyone, not just with your supervisors, but your colleagues and subordinates to gain the confidence and the respect to be able to, you know, uh, do well in those industries. Mm -hmm. I'm intrigued about the story around how you were selected to become uh, president of the investment bank of, of Merrill Lynch. I understand there was a little bit, as you mentioned, politics going on around your selection. And if I read it correctly, you were not necessarily the front runner for this role, but, but you did finally get selected for this role. Could you share with us a little bit about you know, that, that whole experience and what you were going through personally as the question of the leadership of the investment bank at Merrill Lynch was being decided? Sure, so I think you're yeah, referring to a period for the year in 2003, early yeah. 2003. When I was uh, global head of fixed income and my immediate supervisor was um, basically head of global markets and investment banking, uh, which I ended up taking uh, in 2003, later, a year after he was uh, asked to leave, I guess. So I think the politics that you are referring to was that uh, he and his colleague tried to <laughs> uh, muscle themselves in to become, you know, a president of Merrill Lynch. And the CEO of the company at the time didn't really appreciate that. Mm -hmm. So that's why he was asked to leave and that created a uh, position, which I ended up uh, occupying in 2003 as the co-president of global markets and investment banking. Did you, did you, was this an unexpected thing or did you know that you would be in line for this role if how it shook out? Uh, it was somewhat unexpected because mm -hmm. I was perfectly happy running the global markets business because I relocated to New York only in 2000 to head up our global derivative business. And then 2001, I was appointed to this position to head up global fixed income. So I wasn't expecting anything. I thought I would be doing the uh, same job for you know, three, four years. Uh, and then this incident happened, and then I was asked to lead the organization in 2003. So it was somewhat unexpected. And you were just in your low 40s at the time as well, correct? Uh, yes, I was uh, 41. Yeah. 41, okay. So as a 41-year-old, you were leading one of the major uh, investment bank institutions in Wall Street. Did that create a certain sense of, I guess, nervousness or were you, did you feel like you were ready for that role? Uh, I wasn't nervous. I, I just try to uh, put my head down and do the job mm -hmm. because uh, upon taking any position that I had, the first thing that I would do is uh, assess the organization over the course of a month or two, and then I would uh, come out with an optimal organizational structure. And then, as I said before, I would try to hire the best talent to fill each of those uh, positions. And then we would have a managerial process to run the operations on a daily basis. So it was pretty much of a routine, if you will. And you know, same thing happened once I took on the role of uh, being the co-head of global markets and banking in 2003. What would you say uh, within your career at Merrill Lynch, what, is, what do you consider your proudest achievement there? I think it has to be the fact that as the one and a half, you know, generation Korean American, you know, as you can tell, my English isn't perfect. I somehow managed to become the co-head of global markets and banking at Merrill Lynch, which is a quintessential American institution at the age of 41. And I feel proud of the fact that I was able to, with um, all the members of the team, that I was able to build a well-diversified portfolio of businesses before I left. I left in uh, May of 2007. Mm -hmm. And the Merrill Lynch as a company 
you know, uh, recorded the best quarter ever results uh, for the quarter of uh, June 30, 2007. So I was very proud of, um, you know, my career there. So you, you left Merrill Lynch, as you mentioned, in 2007 to set up uh, your own hedge fund. Um, and according to a press release, uh, you had entrepreneurial ambitions uh, as well. Tell me that decision about leaving this kind of stable mammoth of an organization within Wall Street and now to head off to start something that uh, you wanted to do uh, as an yeah. entrepreneurial activity. Yeah. Actually, I tried to leave the bank in September of 2006 because at the time I felt that um, I had accomplished as much as I could at the bank that I wanted to pursue my long-term goal of setting up my own operation, if you will. And so I thought the timing was right, uh, which was September of 2006. But then uh, the CEO and the board asked me to stay, you know, because everything was still going well. And, and I guess they couldn't figure out why I wanted to leave the institution at the time. But anyway, eventually I was able to convince them and I ended up leaving in May of 2007. And at the time, it's true that the bank issued a press release stating that uh, you know, they were going to invest in my hedge fund. So it has nothing to do with, uh, what do you say, you know, how I was doing at the bank. I wasn't you know, doing anything badly or anything. It was just my personal desire uh, at the time that I felt strongly that it was a time for me to, um, you know, leave and pursue my uh, long-term goal. And the long-term goal was to be independent and have your own business. Was that was that your? Yes, uh, that's right. I mean, uh, that my long-term goal was to be able to continue to trade, which I still do uh, today. And to be able to build my own business with uh, other professionals, so I wanted to set up a mini uh, Merrill Lynch, if you will, uh, comprising purely the trading side of the operation, and not including other parts of the investment bank. Um, so I always wanted to accomplish that, but uh, obviously I failed to do so. And and was it in part because of the timing where? the the financial crisis hit uh during that period or what led to you not being able to achieve your goal yeah it was uh, absolutely due to the financial crisis because the bank did promise to uh, invest you know, large sums of capital and there were two other banks who also promised to uh, invest at the time but with the onslaught of financial crisis they were not able to fulfill their promises, if you will. And the mistake that I made was I, based on those promises, I went out and hired uh, a large number of professionals to build the operation. And um, yeah, so that was the mistake, I guess, uh, that I made. I should have started out small, uh, should have received capital, and then uh, should have built out the, uh, the operation. But it wasn't meant to be. I mean, like I said earlier, timing is everything, and it wasn't the uh, right time for me to start a hedge fund at the time. So I'm wondering, you personally, I mean, you had a, this, such a rapid rise in, in the investment world. You were obviously were at the pinnacle of, of your career, and, and you launched this, um, uh, your own firm. And just the timing wasn't right. And it just, you know, it didn't happen. And I, I'm just wondering from a personal standpoint, as a leader, you know, were you struggling at that time? Or what, what was going through your mind at the time? Or are you someone that just says, you know what, this didn't work. Close it up. I'll move on. Yeah. I mean, 2008 was a difficult period for, I would say, my family, especially my wife. I mean, over the years, you know, I learned to deal with uh, stress and problems and try to confront them and, you know, solve them and try to 
deal with them, if you will. But, uh, so I didn't feel a lot of stress, to be perfectly honest. But it was my wife who was more <laughs> impacted by the whole experience. And, you know, I felt bad about all the uh, people that joined the, the hedge fund operation initially, believing that it would be a success. So that didn't feel good. Yeah. So how did, how did, you, how did you deal with that period of your life? Oh. I mean, I, you know, obviously I learned uh, quite a bit from that experience. So I would just say that if there are people out there looking to start up a hedge fund or any other operations, you know, I'm more than happy to give uh, free advice <laughs> what to do and what not to do. Sure. I, I just learned how to deal with the situation. And then, you know, you learn, try to learn from the experience and try not to make the same mistakes and, you know, try to uh, live your life. If you don't mind, we'll, we'll shift to your family. I'd love to learn about your family. You have two daughters, correct? That's right, yes. And one is currently in college with you at home, and the other is uh, graduated from college and uh, is working currently, correct? Uh, actually, my elder daughter is uh, at Stanford Business School. Okay, okay. She did graduate from UPenn, and she worked for Uniqlo for six years. I see. Uh, she's in her second year. She's uh, doing both online and in-class um, you know, studies on campus. Mm -hmm. so she's not uh, with me and my younger daughter at home. Mm -hmm. My younger daughter is uh, 19 and she's a rising sophomore, but she's at home. She's been home since <laughs> March of this year. And I have to say, that's one of the uh, silver linings of this pandemic. When could I ever spend, you know, six months, and most likely a year, I guess, by the time this is all over, you know, when can I have the opportunity to spend time with my teenage daughter <laughs> at home? Yes. So I treasure that uh, very much. Mm -hmm. She probably doesn't treasure it as much as I do, but, you know, it's been a... Uh, Blessing in disguise. Well, uh, I imagine you're during your career at Merrill as well as uh, you know your post Merrill career as well. Uh, you didn't. You were extremely busy, and and I'm wanted to ask about your own kind of family, kind of balance. I guess you had a family life. You had two daughters at home, and as well as this career that I, I imagine was all consuming. And how, did you, were you able to maintain balance during this time? I have to be honest with you, probably not. So I relied on my wife, who was, the, uh, who was really the rock in our family. Hmm. She's the one who raised our two daughters uh, while I was all consumed at work. Hmm. You know, that's an honest answer. I didn't get to spend too much time with my daughters. Um, I would, you know, oftentimes travel all the time. I was rarely at home. And when I was at home, you know, I would be engrossed in work. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of feel guilty that I didn't have the opportunity early on in my life to have spent the time with them. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your wife, uh, Ari, um, how you met her, and it sounded like uh, you met her soon after college, correct? Or was yes. it during college? Uh -huh. so, no, soon after college, while I was uh, working at uh, Manufacturers Hanover Bank. At the time, I was living in New Jersey, and I happened to attend a Christmas service at a local church with my um, brother and my sister. And that's where I uh, met my wife. And uh, I'm not lying, but when I f saw her, I knew that I wanted to <laughs> marry her. <laughs> and my kids always joke with me nowadays, uh, still nowadays that is, that I married her because I wanted a uh, green card because she was a US citizen at the time. <laughs> oh. Uh so how much longer after, so you, I'm 
imagine you you saw her and did you soon after contact her and ask her uh, on a date and uh, yeah so okay. right after meeting her at church uh we went on we dated for about a year and i proposed at a local korean bomtang house believe it or not and then we got married in 1988. i see oh. and then um and then from there uh, as newlyweds, it sounds like you went to Japan afterwards, right? Or soon after that, correct? That's right. That's right. Three years after we, yeah. we moved to Japan. And we had the best time living in Japan. You know, my wife loved the country, loved the experience, uh, and so did I. We had a great time. How did the two of you complement each other? First of all, she was my best friend. And, you know, I guess. She took care of the household-related uh, uh, matters. So, and as I said, she's, she's the one who really raised my two daughters. Mm. And I was, uh, you know, outside doing all the work, I guess. So we complimented that way. And also, you know, she's very, she was very down-to-earth. And she was also very religious. Mm -hmm. So I would, you know, I would talk about everything. And I would always confide in her and really get her advice on a number of things all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, even work-related items, personal-related items, before making any important decisions. You had mentioned uh, in another conversation that you had some passions in, in the art interior design and wine oh, right. uh, I, i'm wondering if if some of these things were uh, is this something that uh, both you uh, something that you, maybe your wife introduced you to or something that both of you developed together as a husband and wife over over your marriage or how did you get introduced to this kind of the the, the artistic side of, of you yeah no that came from my son okay i was the <laughs> one who got into art collecting and you know interior designing and wine tasting events and you know over the years my wife uh, joined me and you know we enjoy those uh hobbies if you will together yeah hmm. uh, did she have any hobbies that uh, that you picked up from her uh, over time did you golfing or anything like that or no, I mean, she played tennis, but really her life was really devoted to our daughters. Mm. So almost the whole time she would spend, you know, time with teachers and parents at uh, my daughter's schools, which was uh, Marymount here in New York. Yeah. Yeah, so she spent almost all of her time at school. She volunteered on a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. And she was also close to her brother and sister who lived here. So and she was spending a lot of time with the family members, mm -hmm. my daughters, and you know, their school. Yeah. She recently passed uh, in 2018. Tell me about what you've learned from this experience uh, with the death of, it sounded like your best friend, and how you and your daughters have, have transitioned from this experience as a family. Yeah. I guess the, you know, simple lesson that I learned was that life is short. We can't really uh, rely on anything. Anything can happen. Mm -hmm. So you have to live your fullest uh, life while you can. So my wife was diagnosed with stomach cancer in April of 2017. Uh, right after we came back from my daughter's um, school trip in Portugal and France. And, you know, when you heard the news, obviously you were devastated. So I, you know, I tried to find the uh, best medical care that uh, I could. And I dropped everything from doing everything. You know, I dropped everything. And then I tried to uh, be with her and take care of her. Uh, which I think I did for the 18 month and she passed away a year ago, you know, but during that ordeal, she never once complained about the pain. And she was that kind of person. 
And if there is a silver lining to this whole experience, it was that I transitioned from being an outsider to my daughters and became a lot closer to them. So my elder daughter described me as her best friend nowadays. And also because of this pandemic, it gave me the opportunity to become even closer to to both of my daughters. So it became an opportunity for you to really, I guess, catch up and kind of solidify those um, relationships that you had hoped to solidify (laughs) earlier in life, but you were tied up, but these kind of family incidents help you to bond I guess, restore some of those relationships or create some of those relationships. Uh, yes, I think that's, uh, yeah. that is true. I mean, you know, life can be funny at times, but yes, that's the um, outcome that, that we're enjoying now, that I get to spend a lot more time with my daughters. And it's also a good thing that I have a lot more time nowadays anyway compared to you know, 10 years ago. What, what did you learn about yourself? during this, that 18 month period while you were taking care of your wife? I wish, <laughs> I wish I could have uh, been nicer to my wife. And, you know, I think I was a good husband and partner and, and all that, but I wish I could have done even more. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. You also, just a year before your wife passed, your father passed as well. And how did that experience impact you? Yeah, so my father passed away three years ago. And, you know, he had been sick for a couple of years prior to uh, passing. So it wasn't a total surprise, but it was, you know, still a big loss for our family. And what happened was... uh, my brother and my sister and I ended up taking over the family business that he was running in Malaysia and Indonesia. And so I spent, you know, quite a bit of time in 2017. I think I made more than 11 trips out to Indonesia and Malaysia just to take a look at all the uh, businesses that he was running. Uh, in the end, we are in the process of now, you know, uh, selling or winding down those businesses. Mm-hmm. It's kind of sad, but the reality is that none of us want to move to Indonesia and Malaysia. Mm-hmm. And the type of businesses that, that my father was running uh, requires a presence in those countries. So we are in the process of you know, uh, selling family businesses. Mm-hmm. How was your relationship with your father as an adult? Did um, you said it was a big loss? Was it a big loss to you personally? Did you had you developed your relationship, a close relationship with your father, older in life? I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it was a close relationship. I mean, I greatly respected my father. I knew that you know he had a soft heart, and although he was, you know educating us or telling us what to do and you know, lecturing us and what have you. And because he was repeating himself many times, I got tired of it. By the way, I, I took on his habits and I passed that down to my daughter. So, <laughs> so like, like what do you call it? Like father, like son, I guess. Yeah. But, you know, I had great respect for him. He was a trailblazer. I mean, just imagine... Uh, in the 1960s, you know, he didn't speak much English, yet he managed to you know, go to Malaysia and get a mining license and build a huge business. And he's been doing that and expanding his business in Indonesia uh, over the years uh, until, until now. So you know, I have huge respect for him. He obviously cared deeply about the family. Obviously you know, deeply care about my mom and also us. And he always wanted the best things for us, but he was very strict. So, 
you know, one thing that I regret is not having had the opportunity to really be intimately close, if you will, to my father as I was with my mom and siblings. But it sounds like you have his resilience and his, obviously, his business acumen, but also love for family as well. It sounds like that's some of the legacy you'll be taking, you've taken away from what he's passed on to you. Yeah, I mean, I, I learned that from my, both of my parents and you know, the love of family, I think that is important. You know, it's good to have a good career, I think, obviously, and, you know, have many, you know, acquaintances and so forth achievements. But in the end, it, it's all about you, your family and your close friends. Well, that's it, really. So I treasure having a very closely knit family, not just with my daughters, but also with my brother and his family and my sister and his family. And we are very close, you know, and I'm really uh, grateful for that. Um, You also established a a family foundation, and I read that, it's you establish it to support the lives of underserved and under-resourced Korean Americans in areas of education, social services, and arts and culture. What led you to you and your family to establish this foundation and give toward this mission? What was the, what was the catalyst of all? Yeah, so my wife and I have been involved with various charities, you know, starting in 1980s. I would say mostly with local uh, organizations here in the tri-state area and also with our alma mater. But uh, during the period when my wife was sick in 2017, we discussed the idea of setting up a foundation to help the Korean Americans. So that's what we did. We set up a family foundation with the idea of Uh, helping to better and empower the lives of Korean Americans across all uh, industries, including arts and culture and education and social sciences. Primarily because, you know, it was my wife's wish too, that we wanted to, genuinely wanted to see Korean Americans uh, excel, do well in this country collectively as a group. And in the past two years, through a couple of friends, I got to know a handful of Korean American nonprofits. And we've uh, donated and pledged more than a million and a half dollars to these organizations for the sole purpose of trying to help the Korean American community. And through this whole process, I also uh, learned that it's not, it wasn't just about, you know, donating money per se, but also that I was able to help these organizations in terms of their governance, organizational structures, and also in terms of hiring, you know, staff into their organizations. Not all of them, but, you know, some of them. Why do you think it's important? for more Korean Americans to get involved in philanthropy? I think philanthropy is a personal thing. So I wouldn't want to force upon anyone to get into philanthropy. Mm -hmm. I mean, just take us as an example. It took us a long time to, you know, decide to set up a family foundation to help the uh, Korean American community. So it's a personal thing. But I do hope that, you know, uh, those individuals out there with um, desire and the resources to be able to, uh, you know, help the others who are less fortunate than we are. So what, what have you learned through this experience in the last few years since your family foundation has been established? Is there anything new about yourself or new about just the whole process or things that you've never imagined, but you discovered through this process of being a, a donor? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, you know, to be perfectly honest, it's uh, endless. Obviously, although, you know, 
I'm trying to do as much as I can uh, through this family foundation, it's never going to be enough. I mean, we're just a small drop in the bucket, if you will. The world is, you know, lots of people who are struggling, who need a lot of help. And, you know, I'm just, just trying to play a small part in it and hopefully to encourage others who are like-minded to bring them along for the same sort of experience. Shifting to uh, COVID-19, you've mentioned you've been spending a lot of time indoors, especially with your daughter, youngest daughter, which has been a, overall a great experience. <laughs> but uh, I'm sure you've had a lot of time also thinking and, and uh, during this period and focusing your time on, uh, on some of your passions. How, how have you been spending your time at, during this COVID-19 period? Yeah, so obviously, like everyone else, I've been staying at home and doing my best to cope with the, uh, the current situation. I'm still working full time. The good thing about my job is that uh, I don't have to be in any office. All I need is a, uh, either a laptop or a mobile phone for me to be able to trade and invest. Uh, but I'm doing it at, on my own pace, if you will. I'm not you know, pressuring myself to trade every day. Uh, I do it uh, whenever I feel there are opportunities. I'm spending a lot of time focusing on trading, which I uh, have been wanting to do for a long period of time. I'm still doing it, which I'm really grateful for. And then, you know, I'm also looking after my younger daughter here, uh, who is at home full time now. I have to make sure uh, you know, I feed her. A simple thing is like... <laughs> Lunch. You cook for her? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, one thing that, that was also uh, a good uh, outcome from the time when my wife was sick was that I learned to cook, you know, because I had to uh, prepare meals for my wife, you know, uh, lunch and dinner, and I learned uh, how to cook from my wife. I, so I, I have uh, like uh, 15, you know, recipes, if you want. <laughs> that I use to uh, prepare meals for my daughter nowadays. What's your favorite dish or what's your <laughs> most famous dish that your daughter loves to, for you to cook? I would have to say my daughter's favorite dish is uh, kimchi bokumpap with uh, uh, nengche, goi nengche. Wow. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. So you have a, Kore a complete Korean repertoire. Yeah, you have to come over one day. I'll you know, prepare uh, and cook for you guys. I'd love to. We'd love to. I'd love to. Just a, a few more questions. Um, first is, uh, you know, we've seen the financial markets having tremendous highs while the world is kind of ensnared in this current public health and political and economic crisis. You personally, having been in the financial market for so long, do you have any concerns about kind of the current global situation and how the financial market is responding to all of this? Sure. Yeah, I am. I am troubled by the discrepancy between the general overall performance of financial markets in the past six months, although we are going through a bit of a correction now. But the uh, markets have been supported by the abundance of liquidity from the, uh, the Fed, as well as their zero interest rate policy, which is likely to stay until at least 2023. So those factors alone will, I think, continue to support the market. But obviously, the real economy has been suffering. You know, we have more than 10 million people who have lost their jobs and, you know, people are struggling. So there is that uh, discrepancy, if you will, or disconnect. So I'm troubled. I think the economy needs another dose of uh, stimulus from the government. And I hope that uh, it will come soon so that we, at least we can make through this difficult period until the effective vaccine arrives, uh, which is not likely to be until uh, you know, mid-2021. Yeah. Final question I have is, um, if you had the opportunity to talk to your 19-year-old self, what word of wisdom would you share with the younger Dow? So study hard, 
work hard, <laughs> be curious, uh, don't be afraid to try new things, make mistakes, and learn from the mistakes. Again, you know, uh, know your strengths and weaknesses, and you know, improve on your weaknesses. Try not to make the similar mistakes. And be humble, be down to earth, and make many good friends. And be nice to your parents. And have a passion and you know, pursue your dreams. You don't have to get into finance, you know, law or medicine. I think everyone should pursue their passion and their goals in life. And I genuinely would like to see you know, more Korean Americans succeed in this country. That's all I have to say. <laughs> well, with that, thank you very much, Dow, for your time. And thank you for opening up your life uh, to us. And uh, we just really appreciate uh, how you have given back to the Korean American community. And thank you for uh, being a role model and, and for just sharing yourself uh, with a lot of leaders. So with that, thank you very much. No, thank you very much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. We are grateful to Dow Kim for sharing his incredible journey through the finance world and his work with the Dow Kim Family Foundation. For more episodes, please subscribe to our podcast and visit our website at councilka.org. Thank you again and hope you tune in next time to the Korean American Perspectives. Thank you for tuning into the Korean American Perspectives podcast. Head over to councilka.org for the show notes of this episode and see exciting upcoming programs at CKA. That's councilka.org.